Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and it was my privilege to conclude the series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, looking at the book of the prophet Malachi. Let's get started. If you turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of the prophet Malachi. And before we read, let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you. We thank you for the privilege of being together, of being able to have access to your word. Lord, thank you. And as we explore the, the writings of your servant, help us to be alert to the working of your spirit that your word might inform us but more importantly, that your spirit might transform us into more faithful servants. That the name of the Lord Jesus might be exalted in our midst and wherever we, uh, wherever we go tomorrow and the rest of the week, Lord, that the name of Jesus might... Um, resound through us to the rest of this community. Thank you, Father, for your goodness in Jesus. Amen. Well, some of you might remember, it's quite a number of years ago, I think, probably more than 20 years ago here, we had a a small group Bible study in which we looked at the writings of the Italian prophet. And we referred to the uh, Malachi papers. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for you, I can't find my notes now from that study, so you'll have to uh, dig down and, and uh, read carefully. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford, in a letter to a man who was struggling with doubts about his faith, wrote this. He said, We being born in atheism and barons or children of the house we are come of, it is no new thing, my brother, for us to be under jealousies or suspicions and mistakes about the love of God. Because our hearts are by nature contrary to God, we tend to call God a liar instead of believing that He cannot lie. We in spite of ourselves, we believe that God vacillates and changes 
instead of believing that he cannot change. We tend to believe that God is against us when he says he is for us. We credit him with injustice rather than perfect justice. With folly and foolishness instead of perfect wisdom. With indifference, not fatherly care. In fact, there's no part of the character of God that has not been attacked and doubted and maligned in our hearts. And this is the is just the atmosphere into which this prophet brought his message. The name Malachi means my messenger. And if it's a and there's debate about this, if it's a shortened version of the name Malachi, it means messenger of the Lord. Now, you read the book, and I've read it numerous times, and I never got any kind of a hint about when he was working. You have to really look closely. There's just tiny hints here and there. Um, the existence of the temple is implied, which suggests that Malachi was likely ministering sometime after the people had returned from exile and after the temple had been rebuilt. And the reference uh, to a local governor in chapter 1 and verse 8 uh, places his work during the Persian period when local governors were in place reporting back to the king in Susa, Persia. And all this places the work of Malachi in around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, somewhere in the mid to late 4th century B.C. Say, for easy reckoning, about 475 B.C. Perhaps as much as 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah had encouraged the rebuilding of the temple. And then following Malachi's work, there's this period of 400, 420 odd years, something like that, before God speaks to His people again, this time through John the Baptist and then through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, much of what Malachi has to say seems to be directed toward the religious leaders of the day, especially toward the priests. And say, well, that put, takes us off the hook, right? Now, if it's directed to the priests, then it's got nothing to say to us. Well, maybe we need to review the situation before we dismiss the prophet's warnings. 
go back to the beginning, back to Exodus. When Israel as a nation was in her infancy. I mean, she's only a few months old since they left Egypt. And the Lord made an incredible declaration in Exodus 19. Exodus 19 and verse 2. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And I get this. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's the purpose for Israel's existence. This is God's vision statement for Israel. This nation was to represent the living God to all the world and to bring the world before God. Because the role of a priest is twofold. Toward God, he was to represent the people in prayer, in intercession, to bring their offerings and sacrifices to him. And then he was to do an about face and represent God and demonstrate God's character and teach God's word. To the people. And then fast forward. Oh, I don't know. Something like 1,200 years. Uh, we, have we who have received God's mercy and grace in Christ Jesus are also referred to as priests. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies who, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Again, there's this twofold ministry. But the emphasis is, in, is on our demonstration to the world of the character of the God that we serve to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus and 
uh, on our proclamation of His Word. So we can't escape. So with that background, let's take a look at Malachi. Verse 2. Malachi 1 and verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Jacob Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Reading this, I'm reminded of many modern TV courtroom scenes. When the defendant is brought into court, the charge is read. The accused then usually pleads not guilty. And then the court hears the detail of the charge and the evidence that weighs against the not guilty plea. So with Malachi, God says, I have loved you. And Israel disagrees, pleads not guilty. And then evidence is brought forward. The evidence is the contrast between what has happened to Israel and what has happened to Edom. God says, Oh, priests, you did despise my name. And again, Israel disagrees. And again, the evidence is brought forward. And here, God's case is very concrete. And he cites several shortcomings of the priestly attitude. There's contempt for the purpose of the altar. There's contempt for God's glory. There's contempt for God's word. The problem seems to have been that for most of the religious leaders of Malachi's day, 
They were guilty of treating the worship of God and their responsibilities in that worship as merely an occupation. They forgot that theirs was a holy calling in which they were privileged to stand before the living God to serve Him and then to teach the people the very words of this Holy One who had placed such a calling on weak and fallible humanity. And because the priests were so slack in executing their responsibilities, the people followed their direction. Uh, We skip down to chapter 2 and verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The Lord brings three charges against the common people. Charges that are similar in some ways to the charges he brought against the people. They're guilty of faithlessness toward each other, especially in marriage. They're guilty of intermarrying with those of other religions. And they're guilty of overturning the definitions of right and wrong so that justice was perverted. Clearly, These people had forgotten the Lord who had brought the nation out of bondage in Egypt and who had miraculously delivered them time and time again over the centuries. They had even forgotten that He had done exactly as He told them through the other prophets, especially through Jeremiah, and that you know, that he would condemn them to exile in Babylon, and but after 70 years, he would bring a remnant back to the land. 
And these people were the close descendants. They were the children and grandchildren of those who had returned from Babylon. It wasn't like it was ancient history to them. But there's a glimmer of hope. Malachi 3 and 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Um, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, You, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The Lord is coming. And here in this paragraph or two, we have some of the most striking prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament. The first sentence. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me is quoted by Jesus about John the Baptist. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. Before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In spite of their apostasy, the people of Malachi's day were longing for the arrival of the Messiah. Um, But they were hoping for someone who would right all the wrongs that were prevalent in their society without realizing that in large measure they themselves were responsible for that situation. The problem was that not many were ready for His appearing in their midst and they weren't ready for His cleansing and refining work. But the Lord is incredible Incredibly patient with us. Yes, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. 
But even those painful experiences are expressions of His mercy and His grace. He would have been, let's face it, He would have been fully justified had He chosen to eradicate the whole human race based on our self-centered rebellion. But He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not conceived. His character is always to love us even when we turn against Him. And that's why He works in us to refine us, to purify us. To cleanse us. All the tough things that happen in life. All of them. For a believer. Are occasions when the the Lord God is working. To transform us into a better reflection of the Lord Jesus. When I was preparing, I almost passed by this next passage from chapter 3. But then I thought, it's so misunderstood and misused in many Christian circles. I just can't. Malachi 3 and verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? There's the not guilty plea. In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And just for definitions, the word tithe means one-tenth means to give one-tenth of your income, your produce, etc., to a religious organization. Under the Old Covenant, the people were required not merely to tithe, though. I mean, yes, they were required to tithe, but then some. When you add up all the the offerings they were to give, the tithing actually came out to 25 or 30% of their annual harvest by the time all the required annual givings were added up. And then that didn't include the free will offerings or the animals that were to be brought by each household to the, the, uh, the three festivals. 
It didn't include the extra money to be paid for sin and trespass offerings, which, depending on the sin, could be quite high. The tithing offering system also called for the people to have a Sabbath year every seven years. So one-seventh of their income over a seven-year period would be given up, as well as a 49th of it over the 49-year period of Jubilee. And then they were to leave the corners of their fields for the poor to glean. They were to give to charity. They were to take care of the widow, the orphan, the poor, the stranger. So then, if someone today wanted to live under the Old Testament, the old law, in this respect, they would be their giving would exceed something like 40% of their income. That's approaching our income tax levels. So you take the income tax and then you add, you know, double your income tax. What have you got left? Under the new covenant in Christ Jesus, the outlook is quite different. Everything, everything that you have belongs to God. Right? Everything. So we give proportionately as a token of our acknowledgement of this truth. As the Lord prospers us. The question is not how much we should give, but how much we should keep And what we should do with it. Our time, our possessions, our abilities, our finances. That's all part of this stewardship. These things are gifts and trusts from God. We live in the light of the spirit of the law, not the letter. But the principle found in this passage continues to apply. The principle. If we refuse to show our loyalty and faithfulness to God in even such a simple thing as the giving of our time, our abilities, and our finances in gratitude to Him, then He may very well hinder His greatest blessings from being given to us. Remember the parable that Jesus told We don't have time to look at it now, but go to Luke 19 and verse 11 and you'll see it. He gave each of his servants a sum of money to work with. And then he came back after presumably some months, maybe years, he came back and asked for an accounting. And his servants who did well What was the reward of doing well? Well, it was praise from the Master, right? But what else? It was more responsibility. They did well for a little bit, and he said, well, well done. Now I'm going to give you more responsibility. It wasn't more material blessings. He tests us along the way. 
to grow us, to help us to become more like Jesus. The last word of God to the people of Israel as the time of the Old Covenant drew to a close is both frightening and encouraging, depending on where you stand in your relationship with God. Malachi 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evil viewers will be stubble. That day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Again, God promises, threatens, a time of condemnation for those who ignore him. A time of his final judgment. Such as we read, for example, in Revelation. But that same period will be a cause of unparalleled rejoicing for those who revere and respect the Lord Jesus. There's the contrast. Depends on where you are, where you stand. Either terror or joy. And there doesn't seem to be much in between. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's a lot of debate about the timing of the fulfillment of these verses. But I believe them to be a restatement and a, an expansion, perhaps, of the promises of the early part of chapter 3. <clears throat> Elijah, or one like him, was promised to come before the Messiah arrived. And he has come. We know him as John the Baptist. But Jesus, our Messiah, will come a second time. Not for salvation, but for judgment. And when He returns, it'll be too late. Everyone will receive what was promised. Either eternal life or eternal death. The issues we need to honestly face that Malachi has brought forward 
perhaps among others, are these. Do we truly believe that God loves us as we are, but that He loves us way too much to allow us to stay as we are? And have we received His gift of love? That redemption that is available to us in Christ Jesus. Are we committed to living for the glory of God? For the glory of our Redeemer? Living as best we know according to the Scriptures. None of us knows the Scriptures so well that we can say we are fully living according to the Scriptures. Okay? But, what you do know, are you applying it? Do we recognize God's ownership of everything that we are and everything that we have? And His right to direct the use of all of those resources. And are we ready for the return of the Lord Jesus? Are we looking forward to that earth-shattering trumpet call and the Lord's shout of command? Four hundred years pass. And then, two children are born. John is born first. And then about six months later, Jesus is born. God told us it was going to happen. Did we believe him? Well, there were a few who did. And quite a number more have come to recognize the truth of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you Thank You for Your Word. Father, we recognize that there are parts of it that are hard to understand. That we just don't quite get. But Lord, there are so, there's so much more that is clear. That we understand we need to apply. We need to apply it to our own lives. So, Father, ask that You would continue to work in us by Your Holy Spirit. That with every breath, that with everything that we are and everything that You have given us, we might bring You honor and praise and glory in the name of Jesus.
And to you be all that praise. Amen. Worship team, please. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. <laughs>